0: Hello from Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Busy week by any standards, but especially by uh, standards of mid-June. It seemed like we were chasing after a lot of uh, interesting stuff and a lot of, a lot of big stuff. Uh, Clark, I want you to get us started talking a little bit about the reporting that we've done this week on ESSA on the compliance and the state plans and some some feedback and some blowback about uh, the way this process is going.
1: Absolutely. Let's get into it. I think this is going to be one of several big stories that are going to shape yeah. education in Idaho and shape where we go with our public school policies. Just real quick background, real quick context. When we talk about the acronym ESSA, we're talking about the new Well, a little over a year old at this point, year and a half old, the Federal Every Student Succeeds Act. And that's the act of Congress signed into law that pushes control of public schools away from the federal government and gives oversight to the states. It replaced No Child Left Behind and put a lot
0: more uh, power and a lot more jurisdiction in the hands of state education agencies.
1: It sure did. And right now where we find ourselves is Idaho is racing against the clock to turn in its massive state plan to comply with the Every Student Succeeds Act. Uh, 17 states have already turned in their plans to the federal government. Idaho has not done so, and Idaho faces a mid-September deadline to get the plan off to the state uh, to the U.S. Department of Education. The first big story we had this week came from our editor, Jennifer Swindell, who wrote about how, despite this massive deadline looming, major sections of the state plan to comply with ESSA are unresolved and are incomplete. We're in draft format right now. Mm-hmm. We're on the fifth draft. Next week, the State Department of Education has a goal to put out a sixth draft and begin a 30-day public review comment leading up to a crucially important State Board of Education meeting in August. But some of the big decisions about Holding schools accountable, uh, about teacher quality, about measuring uh, success, about handling uh, how we handle intervention and support uh, for schools that perform on the lowest 5% of the scale. Some of those big questions are left unresolved, yeah. Kevin. Um, and that creates kind of an interesting situation because this new federal law has to govern schools. Uh, beginning with the new school year coming up in August, right? right? I mean, it's
0: a pretty, ex- a pretty aggressive deadline. I mean, there isn't a lot of time to uh, to waste here, and you know, as you pointed out, as Jennifer pointed out in her story this week. I mean, the rewrite that's going on right now is pretty extensive. We're not uh, we're not dotting I's and crossing t's no, here. No, we no. are we are writing whole sections. Major of this policy
1: thing. decisions are unresolved.
0: So it was interesting, with that as the backdrop, to kind of hear the reactions and kind of hear the uh, you know, the feedback uh, from stakeholders, from the state board, which discussed uh, where things stand earlier this week, but also uh, the feedback that we heard from a couple of education
1: groups earlier this week. Yeah, the plot thickens. Uh, so we're facing this deadline, time is of the essence, uh, major aspects of the plan need to be uh, resolved and written, but meanwhile... Uh, on Monday, two of the three most prominent, most visible education groups in the state of Idaho. Stakeholder stakeholders Stakeholders is kind of a buzzword that people throw around, but specifically what we're talking about, the Idaho Education Association, which is the statewide teachers union, and the Idaho School Boards Association wrote a letter that they sent to Governor Butch Otter and each of the members of the State Board of Education saying that They continue to be excluded from the process of drafting and creating ideas for this state plan. And they did not mince words. I just want to read directly from one paragraph of the letter to let you know how these education groups felt. It says, I quote, with all that said, we felt it was important for you, you being the governor and the State Board of Education, felt it was important for you to know that we have been discouraged and dismayed that we were not included at the table for the drafting of this plan. We also feel disrespected. We don't feel the State Department of Education's process met the spirit or the intent of the law. So strong words Mm -hmm. from two very influential policy groups. I do want to note... There are other education policy groups and a third prominent education policy group that did not sign this letter that said they felt like school administrators were represented at the table. They were happy uh, with the process. But uh, two of these groups say uh, that they've been cut out of the process. And I want to be really clear. The State Department of Education has not completely ignored these education groups. They have the opportunity to provide written comment, to attend public hearings, and there are some teachers – uh, and at least one school board member have been included on some of these committees. But what they're specifically asking for is as these large education groups, these large associations, they want to come together with the state policy leaders, go through this 75-page draft, line by line, page by page, go over what everything means, every how everyone is going to be affected from classrooms to teachers to parents to school board members to administrators and then provide feedback so that they create a plan where everybody feels like they know what's asked of them, they had a chance to provide feedback and input, and therefore they can support and implement the plan statewide. That's what they're asking for. They're saying so far their participation has been basically limited to the ability to make public comment on a draft that has already Mm -hmm. been put put forward.
0: Now, but you mentioned the state board earlier, and the state board has a very Crucial role in this moving forward. Uh, Explain that and and give a sense of kind of where the state board seems to be at this stage of the process because uh, the board discussed ESSA on Thursday.
1: Right. The state board received a briefing on ESSA on Thursday, uh, kind of an odd briefing. They were going over draft five, which will be obsolete in a matter of days Mm -hmm. with the publication of draft six. But the role the state board plays. The President of the State Board, uh, newly appointed President Linda Clark, the former West Data School District Superintendent, the President of the State Board of Education must sign this plan before it's submitted uh, to the U.S. Department of Education. This plan's actually going to be put forward for the State Board of Education to consider during its August board meeting, and that will be sort of like the final check, the final step at the state level before uh, getting that plan together and sending it off to the federal government a month later. Um, But the timing's a little dicey because if bringing it to the state board in August, if they have questions or surprises or they're not comfortable with something, that really throws uh, a kink into the... Uh, timing of the September deadline, which is, my understanding, not negotiable. Right. And
0: and state board member Debbie Critchfield kind of alluded to that in in Jennifer Swindell's story earlier this week, saying, you know, we don't really have a lot of time here. We are kind of painted into a corner. Yeah. But uh, at at this point, it sounds like the state board feels, uh, on balance, pretty comfortable with the way this process seems to be going. They were fairly encouraging in, in their comments on Thursday.
1: During the during the open session, during the meeting on Thursday, board members thanked the State Department of Education for their updates, uh, for the hard work they did. They talked about how difficult a task this is, and certainly this is a difficult task. We're talking about a 75-page document that will guide the implementation of all federal policies Uh, And and pretty much all kinds of policies and accountability for the school level. I'm not trying to make make light of the job. Uh, I'm just saying it's a big job and there's work to be done. Uh, I did have a chance to talk to Debbie Critchfield a little bit after the meeting, and she said that a subcommittee of state board members are going to uh, be meeting over the summer before that August meeting, digesting pieces of the plan, going over it, uh, meeting with some of these stakeholders that felt like they were excluded from the process. And so there is a subcommittee, a smaller group of state board of education members uh, led by Critchfield, uh, Debbie Critchfield, who will be taking a look at this and trying to vet it before it goes to the whole board in August to try to get people more comfortable with it, to try to digest the plan, maybe proactively offer any suggestions. Uh, But it's a huge job. Uh, It's really a document that's going to guide policy uh, in public schools for the foreseeable future. Uh, So the importance of it cannot be overstated, but we had two big stories at Idaho Education News this week. If you want to scroll back through our headlines, anything with ESSA or Every Student Succeeds Act in the headline is what you want to key in on. And next week, if the State Department of Education meets meets its goal and releases a sixth draft, uh, we will cover it. Uh, We will publish a link to the draft, and and we'll begin. uh, It's a a a detailed job, but we'll begin going through it and analyzing uh, the document. So look for that, as early as next week, if the state meets its goal, right, Kevin? Sure. Mm-hmm. I want to move on. Uh, you can check out our site for, those, for that coverage. But I want to talk about a couple of issues that we hit, uh, as you talked about. But let's talk a little bit about what's going on with the cost of these dual credit programs. First of all, what is dual credit? And... Uh, it seems like the program may be a little bit more popular than they anticipated, but that could have budget implications, right? It,
0: it is having budget implications. It's having implications for the budget already. So, dual credit is one of several programs that the state is launching to try to encourage more high school students to continue their education after graduation. We, we know that this is a big topic. We've talked so many times about the 60% goal and the, the, the attempt to try to get more kids to go to. to go to college. Dual credit is definitely geared in that direction. The idea is high school kids are going to take college-level classes. They're going to do it basically at the state's expense and uh, knock out some college credits early uh, at no cost to them and get a sense of what it takes to to take a college-level class, to succeed at a college-level class. It's all part of a $6 million line item in this current year state budget for advanced opportunities. Turns out that 6000000 million didn't come close to covering the bill, and the state is going to have to come back and add another $6 million just to cover this year's costs.
1: Where's so, that money come from, Kevin?
0: Well, that's not really as big a problem as you would think. I mean, it will come from the uh, public schools uh, equalization fund which, is, uh, rainy day fund, which is a rainy day fund just for K-12, and it covers things like unexpected enrollment growth, or in this case, unexpected growth of the dual credit program because the state really doesn't have a handle on what is going to happen with dual credit because uh, basically what we're doing is we're allocating $4100 per student and telling kids go go take uh, a dual credit class go take an AP class go take a career technical class and this is sort of your line of credit if you will to pay for those uh, for those programs so Lawmakers have no way of knowing what's going to happen here until the uh, until the bills come due, and that's what's happened in this case. Now, this current legislature uh, earmarked $7 million for for advanced opportunities in 2017-2018. So you do the math. If things continue as they are now, and even if, they, if it grows further... You're Something going to tells looking, me that's not enough. Right. It's not going to cover this year's costs. It's almost certain that uh, you're going to look at another withdrawal from the rainy day fund to, to cover this. But I think it goes to some bigger issues. And, and I've been writing about this uh, the past few days. It goes back to what we heard from the higher education task force last week. It, it goes to a lot of issues about uh, encouraging students to, to continue their education after high school. Idaho's got a big issue ahead of them. Um, that really hit home to me at the higher ed task force last week. The the number that this group is talking about is 40,000. It will take getting 40,000 more students into the higher education system to try to meet the 60% goal. That is a huge increase in students. And, you know, it's explained as, well, it's the equivalent of two Boise State universities. And, you know, yeah, you know, newsflash, uh, the state is not going to build two additional Boise State universities anytime soon. It's just not... Uh, I don't see that being in the cards. Well, build them, and them. Uh, build them and fill them. Build them and fill them. I mean, it's it's a big uh, big lift ahead, and you know, dual credit is one of those little pieces of this bigger lift in, in terms of trying to get more students to consider college to to enroll in college. Um, one thing that did come out of the the higher ed task force this past week, uh, Jamie Ward Engleking, uh, state senator. Uh, a democrat from Boise is encouraging the state to take a closer look at how these dual credit dollars are being spent are students taking classes that will support their their college and career choices are these credits transferable i mean do they move seamlessly from one school to another and, and her point is look if we're spending 12 million dollars we better make sure that we're getting a good return on the investment Definitely something I want to look at down the road. We've talked about this uh, in-house, and it's a project that I want to take on in the months ahead. When you look at things like dual credit and advanced opportunities, when you look at SAT Day, and we'll talk about the results from the last SAT Day later in this uh, podcast, when you talk about this direct admission program that the state board is doing with high school seniors, the state is throwing a lot of different ideas at this problem of trying to get more, more kids to stay in school after high school. How is it working? Because we're, we're, get, we're getting into where we're spending some real money here. Uh, what kind of results are we getting? What kind of return on investment? That's a big topic that I want to take a, a deeper look at. So these cost figures from this week uh, are interesting, and, and it's sort of uh, illustrative of uh, just the, the size and the scope and the expansion of these programs.
1: Yeah. Uh, good report. I know you'll continue to follow that. You can check that out over at our site at IdahoEdNews.org. Let's shift gears and let's talk about test scores. Um, the State Board of Education was meeting earlier this week. We already covered that just a bit. But as part of that meeting, they got, and I want to be clear, these are preliminary numbers, mm-hmm. uh, but just kind of a dump uh, of, of, uh, of data on, on test results from several key tests. Uh, but let's take them one by one. Uh, where do you want to start? Well, I think there were two big uh, pieces of data that came out this week from the
0: State Department of Ed. Uh, The first is uh, this year's round of scores on the ISAT, the uh, Idaho Standards Achievement Test, or SBAC, the Smarter Balanced uh, Test. It's all the same test. Whichever acronym you want to use, this is the big online test the kids take at the end of the school year based on and aligned to the Idaho Core Standards. Scores were more or less flat. Uh, There were some improvements, uh, especially on the math side, some modest improvements, one or two percentage points here or there, depending on grade level. Uh, but a lot of the patterns that we've seen in the past, we saw again this year, a little bit better scores on the English language arts side of the test, uh, relative to the math scores. And you still see that slide in math scores as you get into junior high school and high school. And that is a, that's been a recurring issue the past few years. And that's been a recurring concern the past few years. What's going on with math scores. So you saw that again this year. And and while you did see a little bit of improvement you did still see that slide going into, the, uh, going into the junior high school and high school years. That's what we know. It's very preliminary on the ISAT. Uh, we will get district-level, school-level data probably in the fall yeah. when the state is expecting to release that. So we'll have definitely a lot more to uh, report on that. SAT, we saw the results from SAT Day. This is the free. Uh, every junior in the state can take the SAT at the state's expense. Cost about a million, a million bucks million to do bucks. that. Yeah, so we saw the results on the SAT, and again, these scores were were flat. They're virtually the same. The uh, yeah, average score is about just shy of a thousand on a test with a perfect score of sixteen hundred. Maybe more important than that perfect score is how students doing in terms of college and career readiness.
1: Let's talk about that benchmark a little bit. What The developers of the test have said that if you reach this score, uh, you're likely to have a high degree of success uh, at the next level. Let's talk about that benchmark and, and where yeah. it is and where Idaho kids are on average. Exactly.
0: So the benchmark is uh, it's 530 on the math section of the SAT. It's 480 on the reading and writing uh, section of the SAT. So about a third of Idaho high school juniors met both of those college readiness benchmarks this year. It was 32% meeting the benchmarks, 33% last year, so not really much of a change one way or the other. That's the key benchmark that I think a lot of educators look at, and certainly a lot of uh, college admissions officers probably look at. Is this student likely to uh, do well in college, to to stay afloat in college and, and succeed at the college level? That's where the SAT is uh, is maybe an indicator. One thing, one thing that was interesting about the numbers that came out this uh, this month, uh, you did have more students taking the SAT. Right. Uh, you had an increase. I I did the math. It was about a 7% increase in the number of high school juniors taking the SAT this year compared to a year ago. So State Superintendent Cheri Ibarra looked at that and kind of, honed in on that increase and said, well, it's not uncommon when you have more students taking a test that the scores are going to be flat to maybe even decreasing a little bit. And statistically, I mean, that, that bears out. That makes sense. Um, but again, it points out, you know, they got over 19,000 juniors taking this SAT. Uh, you know, I, I guess the question, going back to what we were talking about, about uh, all these programs to encourage college enrollment, how many of those 19,000 students will eventually wind up going to a two- or four-year college? You know,
1: that remains to be seen. Yeah, it does. Uh, it's an interesting report. You can check that out. Uh, last major topic I want to hit on this week is politics. A little bit of musical chairs that we saw uh, within a Republican governor's race. Uh, tell me what happened. We, we, we dropped a candidate, right? We, we It's kind of like,
0: you know, you know, you lose a son, but you gain a, a daughter kind of in a marriage thing, right? Um, Russ Fulcher uh, pulled out of the race for governor. Uh, and he will now run in the first congressional district. Uh, he will run for the seat that Raul Labrador is abandoning so that he can run for governor. Right. So... Mutual endorsements all the and, way and around. And mutual endorsements, which are significant, not terribly surprising. Uh, Labrador is endorsing uh, Fulcher for Congress. Labrador did endorse Fulcher three years ago when he ran for governor. When he ran against Butch Otter, so I think what you saw, and definitely in the comments, and definitely in the uh, the news releases, and in a fundraising letter, is uh, this is seen as sort of a, a unification movement within the conservative wing of the Republican Party that, yeah. uh, Fulcher on Thursday said, you know, I see this as being, uh, as serving in a complementary role to, uh, to Raul Labrador, assuming, uh, you know, he envisions Labrador getting elected governor. He envisions himself getting elected to Congress, obviously. So his point is he believes that the two of them would work well together in complementary roles. What this does in terms of the race um, for governor, I think it kind of clears uh, some of the field in terms of uh, Fulcher and Labrador are both pretty strong conservatives. Uh, They appeal to the same base within the Republican Party and would have been competing for the same base of support in a contested primary. So, you know, that maybe solidifies Labrador in terms of trying to attract votes from the from the conservative wing of the GOP. And it might give Fulcher a mean in, in terms of attracting that vote in the congressional race. The congressional race, I think, is a lot harder to handicap because I don't think we've seen everybody getting into this race yet. I would be very surprised if it just turns out to be the two candidates on the Republican side, Russ Fulcher and David Leroy. They're going to have company. I would almost guarantee that we'll see more candidates in that race
1: sure yeah a hot take here though uh i think this really helps representative labrador in his bid for governor i thought from the beginning um, that those two uh if they had stayed in the race together for governor fulcher and labrador would be competing for the same Mm -hmm. votes and so i think these two guys got out of each other's way and i think at the end of the day still have a long ways to go a whole campaign in front of us but i think uh, the basic level takeaway here is this really helps Labrador, maybe even puts him in the driver's seat a little bit, uh, in this race based on but, what we know now.
0: But interesting too, and you will see this in any Republican primary in Idaho, that, that run to try to solidify your, your, your credentials within that, in that conservative, uh, wing with that conservative block of voters, uh, Tommy Alquist Tommy tried Alquist. to make some news on the conservative right, front this right. week. Right. Promising- Kimberly Crusey of the Associated Press had an interview with Tommy Alquist. It's worth checking out. What's interesting on the education front, he talked about repealing the Idaho Core standards. He also talked about cutting $100 million from the state budget without a lot of details
1: about where those cuts would come. So, Doing away with task force, knowing that we have an active higher education task force and we still have two years of reform recommendations from the original K-12 task force. Uh, he said he would do away with task force always and forever. So,
0: so, kind of a hard tack to the right from Tommy Alquist, who I think a lot of folks had kind of assumed would be running more as a, a moderate uh, Republican, certainly, uh, certainly made a play towards the uh, conservative voter bloc in, in that interview. We'll see how that all unfolds, but an interesting interview from from Kimberly Kruse of AP. It's worth checking out.
1: Check that out. Real quick, next week, I'm going to continue to follow uh, the Every Student Succeeds Act, Idaho's plan to comply with ESSA. What's your top story that you're going to be following next week, Kevin?
0: Well, Randy Schrader and I are going to try to dig deeper into these SAT scores because we should be able to get some school level and some district level data on that. Also on Tuesday, the... uh, School Funding Formula Committee reconvenes. It's their first meeting since after the legislative session. We'll see how they start work on phase two of their project of trying to rewrite the state's funding formula. Big job, so it'll be interesting to see what uh, transpires on Tuesday as it sets the stage for the rest of the year.
1: Yep, getting the band back together. I know mm. you'll be watching that one for us on Tuesday. Well, I can already hear the background music starting. That means it's time to let everybody go. We always have a lot of fun here on the Extra Credit Podcast. I want to thank each and everybody uh, for listening. Be sure to check us out on Twitter at Idaho News. And In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. As always, I'm Clark. I'm Kevin.
0: Have a good week.